Good morning, brothers and sisters, friends. It's good to see you this morning. I'm so thankful for a faithful team of servants, many of them who lead us in worship on a regular basis, and I'm grateful to God for how they use their skills to uh, lead us. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Nahum. Nahum, you might struggle to find it. We've been thinking about how hard it is to find uh, in days past. Uh, it's tucked in, those three little chapters among those books right at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, those 12 12, we call them minor prophets. If you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame in that. You'll find the table of contents right at the beginning of your Bible. It will tell you what page Nahum is in your scriptures. We at our church make a, a practice of walking carefully through books of the Bible. It is We do this in submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus because we believe he speaks to us through his word. And I use the present tense on purpose. The Lord speaks to us through his word. And today, we're going to continue walking through the book of Nahum. We go back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Here we are in Nahum. We're going to read uh, chapter 2, and you can follow along. If, you're, if you've scrolled there, you've been in Nahum for a long time and are just waiting for me to get started. So here we are, Nahum chapter 2. Now, um, you'll notice I, I called this talk this morning, The News from Nineveh. And Nahum chapter 2 is a poetic and vivid description of a military attack on the city of Nineveh, the ancient city of Nineveh, that destroyed it. So that's what we're going to read here, this poetic military battle. Nahum chapter 2. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. Now back to the battle. The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day that they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open, and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She's pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den? The place where they feed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. 
This morning, I want to talk to you about how to watch the news. That's probably an overstatement. I want to talk to you about one slice, or a small slice of how to watch the news. I'm not going to talk to you about media bias and how to recognize it. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to talk to you about evaluating the claims of opinion journalists. I'm not going to talk to you about fake news and whether or not it exists and how much of it exists. What I want to talk to you about is what should run through the mind of a follower of Jesus when you see news stories about terrorism or about war, invasions, and attacks. What sort of things should run through, run through your mind when you wake up in the morning and you uh, uh, start scrolling or you turn on the television uh, or you pick up the newspaper? Oh my goodness, who does that anymore? When, when you do those things and you see a headline about a Russian bomb that fell on a Ukrainian mall and killed 23 people, including seven children, what should run through your mind? What should run through your mind when you see a, a news story that the Chinese government has imprisoned even more Uyghur Muslims in a concentration camp? What should run through your mind on the anniversary of the pullout of United States troops from Afghanistan and they do a news feature about the condition of women and girls in Afghanistan under the government of the Taliban? What should you think... Uh, when you see another report and update about the thousands of people still in refugee camps years later after they fled from Syria and the civil war there. What does a Christian think? Well, I have a, a, a four-part answer to that, uh, what should a Christian think, and, and I, hope, I hope it's not too simplistic. Here's my four-part answer. Number one, they're really big. This applies to governments, I suppose more specifically. Wow, they're really big. They, they really in, uh, exert their influence in the world. They're throwing their muscle around and they've got the troops and the money and the power to make it happen. They're really big. Second, they're really bad. This is terrible what's happening. They're really bad. Third, they're really going to fall hard. The first two are observations, right, uh, you make about what's going on right now. This third one, though, is an expression of faith. The world is ruled by a God of justice, and he will see that this is made right. They're really going to fall hard. And number four, hallelujah. Is that too simplistic? Does that, does that ever uh, run through your mind, those four things? They're really big. They're really bad. They're really going to fall hard. Hallelujah. I want to show that to you in the text this morning, that pattern. It's a pattern that's in Nahum. It's a pattern that's repeated all the way through the Bible. I want to make a case that this is a grid you should use when you watch the news. They're really big. They're really bad. They're really going to fall hard. Hallelujah. I'm going to show that to you in Nahum and a couple other passages in the New Testament, and uh, then uh, maybe it will help you uh, to see how a Christian watches the news. 
Now, the first two, they're really big, they're really bad. I think that we have uh, already covered those things in Nahum thus far as we've been walking through this book. This is the third week we've been in Nahum. Remember that I suggested to you that you need to pair in your mind Nahum and Jonah because Nahum and Jonah are both about the city of Nineveh, the capital of the ancient empire of Assyria. And the Assyrian empire was the first um, great world power. And the Assyrians, we've talked about this, were not just powerful, they were also vicious and violent and cruel. They were vicious and violent in their practice of slavery. When they would invade a nation and take over, they plundered it. They took everything they possibly could out of it. They scattered the captives. They'd go in and and, and attack a nation. They would take all of their valuables. They'd kill all of their soldiers. They would... um, um, Uh, impale and behead a a few people. They'd enslave some. They would take many people out of the country and then they would uh, leave the poorest of the poor there and then they'd bring other captives in and settle them there. The thinking was that if they um, put together a, a lot of people of different ethnicities and different religions and different languages that they would never be able to unite and rebel against the Assyrians. That That was their strategy. They were really big and really bad. Uh, look up at Nahum 3.1 again, just uh, briefly here. Nahum 3.1 says, calls Nineveh the city of blood, um, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Or look at verse 19. Nahum 3.19, nothing can heal you. you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. And here's this sentence that sticks in my mind. Who has not felt your endless cruelty? Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. And it's not because necessarily Jonah was selfish or uh, uh, stingy with God's mercy. He knows, he knows the Assyrians, the people in Nineveh, do not deserve an ounce of God's mercy. There's a rule for arguing on the internet. You wouldn't think there's rules, but there is a law that I see every now and then someone invoke. It's called Godwin's Law. Godwin's Law states that when you are making an argument with someone, the first person to invoke the name Hitler automatically loses. People make comparisons to Hitler all the time, way too, too often. You know, if, if in the mayoral race of a dry gulch, Iowa, somebody compares their competitor to Hitler, they have lost, right? That's a violation of Godwin's law. Well, I'm going to invoke it. The Assyrians were in the ancient Near East very much like the Nazis were in Germany in Europe. A cruel, vicious, violent powerful. Would you want to, if you were an evangelist, would you want to, if God called you in 1942 to go into the heart of Berlin and announce, unless the Nazis repent, God is going to destroy the city in 40 days? How anxious would you be to buy your plane ticket? You'd be looking for a boat to Joppa too, I think. Oh, really big, really bad. 
And now we know that Nahum was written for the oppressed, right? Jonah spoke to the Ninevites. He went to Nineveh and preached to them, however reluctantly. Uh, but Nahum spoke to the people of Judah who were suffering under the oppression, the power of the Assyrians. So Nahum is a book of comfort for the oppressed. It's not for the oppressor, but it does. How do we read this without thinking about big and bad nations on the earth? Bigness can be very deceptive. Bigness and power can make you think that, well, it can make you think that God is on your side. I'm this big, I'm, God must be on my side. Or it can make you think that there is no one who can oppose you, even God. You're so big, um, no one can take you down. Bigness can be very deceptive. But Nahum reminds us, reminds us all who think they're big, God sees, God knows, he'll not allow cruelty to continue endlessly. You can dominate like the Assyrians for hundreds of years, uh, but, but uh, no matter how big you are or how bad you are, God reigns. God reigns. And if God says to you the same thing that God said to the Ninevites in chapter 2, verse 13, I am against you. If God says that to you, you're doomed. It's a pattern all the way through the Bible. How does God deal with powerful nations? Well, he humbled the Egyptians, he humbled the Assyrians, he humbled the Babylonians. All the way through the Bible, there's this pattern. I can't help but think about this passage and this book because I happen to be a citizen of a nation that's big. We've got the biggest economy. We've got the biggest navy. We've got the biggest nuclear arsenal. We've got uh, a lot of influence in the world. America is big. Right now, we're having a great debate in society about whether or not America is bad. America's big. Is America bad? And started in academia. It's moved its way around. Uh, uh, this is not the time or place to argue about the, the badness of our country. As far as I can tell, it's not a matter of biblical conviction. I think followers of Jesus can disagree about this and still worship together in the same uh, church if they will love one another. But um, verse 19 does stick in my mind as a citizen and as a voter who has not felt your endless cruelty? I can't do anything about the cruelty of the past, but I certainly can think about the cruelty now. Is there cruelty I need to think about in the voting booth when I go? Nahum makes me think that way. And actually, the basic orientation of Nahum does help us think in general about nations. Our hope is in no nation on the earth. Sometimes this, this surprises me. Sometimes you hear Christians talk this way, not in our church. I haven't heard this. But some people, some Christians talk about as if the kingdom of God is dependent upon the United States, especially around election time, right? If we don't win this election, America's done. If America's done, the church is done, and, and the gospel won't be able to spread around the world and... and, and um, yeah. How foolish that is. How foolish that is. Nahum reminds us, as, as far as I can tell, if I read the Bible correctly, every nation on earth that exists when the Lord Jesus comes, when the Lord Jesus returns, every nation will rise up in rebellion against him, except his own people. Every nation will rise up in rebellion against him, and every nation is going to fall before him, even the ones that are really big and really bad. 
But Nahum isn't about America. Nahum's about the Ninevites and about the Assyrians. And they're really big and really bad. And chapter 2 tells us it's really going to fall hard. They're really going to fall hard. Now, Nahum chapter 2 is this poetic description of what happened when Nineveh was defeated by the Babylonians and the Medes in 612 B.C. We have uh, historical sources to describe this outside of the Bible. In 612 B.C., uh, a coalition of rising powers, the Babylonians and the Medes, invaded and destroyed Nineveh. We believe that Nahum wrote chapter 2 before the fact, that it's prophecy, that he wrote it before 612, speaking about a future event. One of the reasons that we believe this is because in Nahum chapter 1, verse 12, Nahum says that in his time, at the present moment, Nahum is powerful and has multiple, uh, many allies. So he's writing when Nineveh is at the peak of its power, not near 612 when it was faltering. So we believe for a variety of reasons, though, that Nahum is uh, prophecy. And it's almost like, too, Nahum seems to be watching this on the big screen somehow. It's, it's happening before him, and Nahum is describing it. The assembling of the army, the breaching of the wall, the uh, uh, chariots that race through the streets, the, the, uh, the attempt to defend the city, the fall of the palace. He, he just, just describes this all in sequence as this battle uh, takes place. And what's striking here is that Nahum's description is more expansive than even the Babylonian records. Nahum gives more detail to the battle than the Babylonians did. And it's, Nahum too is, is artistic. It's one of the highest artistic poetic portions of the Bible. Now, if we were Hebrew scholars... And if we were literary experts or literary experts, we might even see it more. But uh, those who are Hebrew scholars and literary experts uh, talk about this beautiful poetry, which does raise the question, why is there such art here in Nahum chapter 2 to describe something that's so bloody and so awful? It would be like writing a beautiful piece of music about uh, the, the, the dropping of the atomic bomb in, Hir in Hiroshima. It would just be out of place to have something so beautiful written about something that was so devastatingly horrible. So why this art to describe this battle? I think what, what's happening here is that the poetry, the beauty of the poetry, matches the beautiful significance of the justice that's on display in Nahum chapter 2. The justice is good, and it is right, and it is satisfying, and it is whole, and the poem matches the significance of what was done. Think about um, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right? One of the greatest um, American speeches ever delivered, the Gettysburg Address. And, and Lincoln was trying to make, what was he trying to accomplish? He wanted his words to match the significance of the sacrifice that took place on the battlefield of Gettysburg. And Nahum's poetry matches the wonder of the justice of God. Uh, let's, let's walk through the text here. We can do this uh, briefly with a, a few simple headline, head, uh, headings here. First, in verse 1, is the warning to Nineveh. 
It says, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Your translation might say scatterer. Scatterer is a more literal translation. It's not violent enough, maybe, uh, in English. Um, So attacker will do, but scatterer is more accurate. And remember, the Ninevites scattered people, and now a scatterer is coming against them. Who is this scatterer, this attacker? It doesn't say, although by the end, God takes responsibility for it in verse 13. I will. Hmm. God uses the Babylonians and the Medes to accomplish his purposes. And then there's this this advice. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Do you think Nahum means this? I think he's being sincere. Get ready. No. Uh, We can't help it. Human beings, if someone attacks us, there's this self-defense mechanism that, we, that kicks in, and the Ninevites are going to defend themselves. But if God is attacking you, you're doomed. Almost like maybe he is mocking them a little bit with that. Verse 2, we'll come back to in, in a little bit. It's, it's a word of, of comfort to Judah. We'll, we'll get back to that in just a minute. But then uh, verses uh, 3 through 5, Nineveh's attackers... Nineveh's attackers in verses 3 through 5. And what it describes here is the most advanced military technology of the day. If you could describe the, uh, the arsenal of the United States, uh, this and, and all of its technology, this is, this is the equivalent. This is the most uh, uh, advanced military technology invading. Uh, the shields of the people, they're, they're red. Why are they red? They're red. And, and actually it says the warriors are clad in red. There's questions about this. Babylonian soldiers wore red. That was the color of their uniforms. The shields are red maybe because they're made of leather, and that's the color they are, or they're, they're covered with copper. That's also a possibility that they'd give them a red hue. There's some, though, who think that the red is not necessarily intentional, but that the red comes from the blood of all the enemies that they've killed, that you either you would cover yourself with red to make yourself look more intimidating, look at all the people I've killed, or you actually have killed that many people and you got blood splattered all over your um, clothing, right? Um, Some of you, this just comes to mind and I probably shouldn't say it, but I will anywhere, anymore. Some of you who watch The Office, Dwight Schrute went into a store one day to buy something from the store, and he was covered, his apron was covered with beet juice. And he walked into the store, and the store owner was terrified because he looked bloody and disgusting. And what has he done? Well, he's been working with beets, but they don't know that. Well, let's move on. Look, the medals on the chariots flash. Chariots, uh, the tanks of the day. Um, they storm through the streets, verse, set, verse 4 says. They, 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 they dart about like lightning. Um, some of you remember uh, Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg, that German uh, phrase that describes the, the German military during World War II, moving as fast as possible to invade nations. And here come the attackers against the Ninevites. They're moving fast. They're moving fast. And verse 5, it's interesting. My translation says, uh, speaks about this, uh, being defense from Nineveh. Um, we're, we're not sure about that. Some people think poetry, sometimes Hebrew poetry is hard to, to translate. Some people think that verse 5 is about Nineveh trying to mount a defense. 
and, and it's not good for them, the text says they stumble on their way. Well, that's not good. If your soldiers are stumbling to get to their positions, that's bad. There are others, though, who think that it's actually the opposing army that's coming, and, and well, why are they stumbling? Maybe they're stumbling because they're stumbling over the bodies of all the people that they've killed. Or they're stumbling because, have you ever tried to push something over and you think it's going to be really heavy and you, you really brace yourself and you give it a, whoo, you push really hard, but it's so much lighter than you thought and you actually stumble because your force carries you through. Maybe Nineveh is so weak that the soldiers thought it was going to be hard and whew, they stumble on their way in. I'm not sure if it's Nineveh's defenders or Nineveh's attackers. Either way, it's bad news. Bad news for Nineveh. Verses 6 through 10 describe Nineveh's fall, and it talks about the river gates. Uh, the river gates. So Nineveh was on the east bank of the Tigris River, and the Kosar River ran actually through the city of Nineveh. There were gates and, and dams and moats and pools all the way through the city of Nineveh. They took great pride in how they moved and used the Kosar River to keep their city beautiful. And this passage implies that somehow the, the attackers used the river to flood the city in, in some way. We're not sure if that's being literal or not. The Babylonians did not make any reference to flooding, but the Greeks, who wrote the history a couple hundred years later, did make reference to flooding. So we're not sure. But they, they used the river. Let's, let's say they, they did. They used the river, and the palace collapses. If you attack the palace and, and the palace collapses, you have, you have taken out the government and the military headquarters. And then verse 7, again, very, very, a little difficult to translate. It is decreed. Um, your translation might say something about she being carried. It's decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away, either a reference to the queen or... Uh, the main idol of the city, Ishtar, but they're being carried away into exile and they're moaning like doves. Now, here's a little Hebrew would help. The word dove is the word uh, Jonah. Jonah's name means dove. And the people are moaning like doves. They, in the book of Jonah, they moan in repentance in chapter 3, and in the book of Nahum in chapter 2, they're moaning because they've been defeated and are being carried off into exile. People are running away. Verse 8 says they're running away like water going out of a pool. Stop, stop. No one comes back. The soldiers are running. Everybody's running. Come back. No. And then Nahum, if he's watching this as it were, on a screen, he seems to get involved in the action because in verse 9, he, he comments, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. It's like you're watching your uh, favorite football team and the, the running back is making a run down the field with the ball and you, you yell from your TV screen, go, go, go. And Nahum is watching this happen and he says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. They've taken every treasure from every place they've conquered. It's just, there's just so much there. Take it, take it all. And then, do you notice uh, verse 10, um, there's, there's alliteration here in my translation, and it's in the Hebrew too, that the NIV kept it. She's pillaged, plunged, stripped. Uh, the, the New English translation says, destruction, devastation, desolation. There's a little bit of alliteration there. And this punchy, 
sentences, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. That's what happened to the people of Nineveh. Let me show you a picture. This picture was taken in New York City on September 11th, 2001. And this is a picture of faces of people watching the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapse. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. And then in verses 11 through 13, Nineveh's hopelessness, Nineveh's hopelessness. And he kind of taunts them again. Every ancient kingdom allied themselves with lions and thought of themselves as lions, but the king of Assyria really thought he was a lion, like he was really strong like a lion. And his city is his own den where he's safe and he rules everything and he brings back all the goodies from all the nations he's conquered and, and, and rewards his family in his den and he's very safe in his den. And Nahum comes along and says, where now's the lion's den? The place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. He's taunting them. And verse 13, this sentence from God, I am against you. God's going to destroy their military power. He says, I'm going to burn up your chariots. He's going to destroy their future potential. I'm going to take out your young officers, your young lions. He's going to ensure that they'll have nothing to rebuild the city with. You're going to have no prey. I'm going to uh, leave you no prey. And then he's going to destroy their global influence. No messengers. Your messengers won't go out on the earth at all. Nineveh is really big. It's really bad. And it's really going to fall hard. Now, I have said that you should think next, hallelujah. Why? And where is that in the text? Well, the why is maybe easier to answer at first here. Justice has been done. That's why. Justice has been done. This terrible oppressor is gone their cruelty is no more. Their, their, uh, God's work in this justice is right and it's good because Nineveh is cruel and vicious and violent and God saw what they did. He knows what they did and he has brought an end to it. Their oppression of the people is over. Palpatine is dead. Darth Vader's gone. The Death Star has been destroyed. Hallelujah. Now, two verses in Nahum, and then one, uh, a couple passages in the New Testament. Look at Nahum 2.2. 2. Hallelujah. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, and the, like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. Oh, God restores. He repairs. He fixes. That's good news. It's good news that God restores. And what's interesting here, this this pattern again in Nahum that we see in all the Bible is that this restoration work is not the work of Judah and Israel. It's not Judah and Israel that have taken down Nineveh. It wasn't their plan. It's not something that they could have accomplished on their own, but it's what God did. And this is the pattern all the way through the Bible. God restores what human beings have broken. 
God fixes what human beings have broken. Just think about uh, even in the beginning of the Bible, this pattern is established in Genesis 1 to 3. God makes this beautiful world. He puts Adam and Eve in it. They're partners together with one another, and they're um, representing God on the earth to uh, fill the world with the knowledge of the glory of the goodness of God. And, and, and they decide to do things their way. They disobey God, and they break things. And when God shows up in the cool of the day to walk with them, Adam is not standing there meeting him uh, with a a, a list of solutions. You know, God, we kind of messed up today, but we're going to fix it. Here's a list of things that Eve and I, we've decided we can do all these things, and this will fix this world that we broke. That's not what they're doing. They're hiding. They're hiding. God is the one who clothes them. God is the one who makes promises. Um, When I was six or seven, I can't remember, I was hanging out at my grandmother's house one afternoon, and my grandmother had in her back room, she had a a carton, I saw this, of glass bottles of Sprite. She bought glass bottles of Sprite, and she she, uh, consumed all the Sprite, cleaned all the bottles, put them back in that cardboard crate, and was going to return them to the grocery store because she'd get some money back for those glass bottles. And I thought they looked pretty cool, and I said, Grandma, can I play with one of those? And she said, yes, you can, but be very careful because, uh, don't break it, because uh, I'm going to take it back to the grocery store. You know what I did with that glass bottle. I have been clumsy and careless my whole life. I broke the bottle. Uh, I was pouring rocks. I poured rocks from her driveway into it, and when I was getting the rocks out, they wouldn't come very easily, and I banged it on the sidewalk, and what do I have to bring to my grandmother but broken pieces? It's all I got. All I have to bring is broken pieces. We meet in celebration every Sunday. We meet in celebration in part to celebrate what God has done about the broken pieces of our lives. That, that you don't have the power, you don't have the goodness, you don't have the wisdom to fix what's broken in the earth. There's the damage that Adam and Eve did and there's the damage that we continue to do, that you continue to do, that I continue to do. The only way that things are going to be fixed is if God fixes them. And the good news of the Bible is that he has done it through his son, the Lord Jesus. This fixing, which in the Bible speaks about being reconciled with God, repairing our relationship with God, was accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die. This is how you become a Christian. If, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, you should understand this is how you become a Christian, by coming to God and saying, my life is a mess, it's broken, I can't fix it myself, I'm grateful to you that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for my sins in my place. He was buried, he rose again, ascended into heaven. Please, in his name, forgive me and give me life. That's how you become a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, so you know, ask someone here who looks like they've got some miles on their odometer. Ask them, those who have followed Jesus for a while, that, that um, life as a follower of Jesus is a consistent and constant turning to him. 
God shows things to you in your life. You read the Bible, you pray, you hang out with other Christians, and God shows you other areas of your life, more areas of your life that you're broken. And, and being a follower of Jesus is, is bringing a lot of broken bottles to God and saying, please, please, can you fix this? Over and over and over again. Some of you this morning need a reminder that, when, uh, uh, that comes on the Sundays when we gather together about bringing your broken pieces again to the Lord Jesus. Here's another broken part of my life I found. Please, will you fix it? Paul described it this way in Romans 12, these very famous verses in Romans 12. He said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Here it is. Bring them over and over again. <laughs> Ed Lewis says that the problem with a living sacrifice is that living sacrifices keep crawling off the altar they have to get back up on there. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. God is the one who fixes. And, and so we say, hallelujah. But then look at, at another verse in Nahum. Again, 3 verse 19, Nahum 3 19. It says, all who hear the news about you, Nineveh, clap their hands at your fall. They clapped their hands at your fall. Yes, yes, they fell. I'm going to show you another picture. It's a picture that you all recognize. It's scandalous kissing in church. You recognize this picture, don't you? It was taken on VE Day in New York City. When the news spread in New York City that the Germans had surrendered, people gathered in Times Square and in places all over the United States and celebrated. They clapped their hands at the news of the fall. They danced, sang, uh, clapped their hands, rejoiced, and smooched. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. Hallelujah. Now, two passages from the New Testament that I want to walk through uh, briefly. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll show it to you. I'm going to have you turn in a minute to Revelation 18. You can make your way there. Revelation's right at the end of the Bible. If you want to make your way, you can right now. But we'll be in Revelation 18 in just a minute. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, a passage about the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is this foretaste, Paul says, of what is to come. And there's going to be hallelujahs here in a minute. Let me show it to you. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Those who belong to him are those who will be made alive in him. Then the end, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom, uh, when he hands over the kingdom of, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Really big, really bad. Dominion, authority, and power, they're really going to fall hard when the Lord Jesus returns. Um, not just human enemies, but even death itself, Paul says. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, when Christ has put everything under his feet, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God... Here it is, 
may be all in all. Hallelujah. At the end, the Lord Jesus is going to destroy every dominion, every authority, every power, everything that is raised uh, in rebellion against God. He's going to destroy them, and he'll hand over this victorious kingdom to the Father, and then God will be all in all, and God's people say, hallelujah. (laughs) Some people think that heaven, the life to come, is going to be unlimited golf and fishing and reunions with mama. you'll have everything in heaven you need to be happy. I I know that. But what will make you the happiest is that God will be all in all. All right, one more passage, Revelation 18. Revelation 18, uh, you can turn there. Again, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. If you're in the book of Concordance, turn left. And if you're in the book of Maps, which your Bible should have, if not, sell it and get a new one. Uh, turn to the left and turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18, verse 21. Uh, this is about the fall. Here's a really hard fall of the city of Nineveh, uh, sorry, Babylon. Now, not the ancient city of Babylon, uh, but another rebellious group against the Lord Jesus. Some people think that this prophecy has already been fulfilled. I am among those who think it's yet to be fulfilled, this great uh, uh, rebellion against the Lord Jesus. Then here, verse 21, uh, the fall of Babylon. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. He had great music. It's over. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. But it's over. Babylon has fallen really hard. And now here is the response, chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his saints. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants who fear you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah. For our Lord God almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him Glory, hallelujah. It can be very scary sometimes watching the news, depressing and discouraging because you see all kinds of evil. Remind yourself, they're really big. They're really bad. They're really going to fall hard. Hallelujah. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we confess to you we are prone to, at times, forget the wonder and the significance of this 
great victory that will be yours in the age to come, and, and that has been, um, we've had a foretaste of them, that, that great victory through history and in the city of Nineveh. Lord, there are some of those in this room who in particular today feel the, the weight of living in this oppressive world. We live in a very free and um, relatively safe place, and yet it is still broken. We are grateful that you see and you know and that you are a God of justice. You will do what is right, and we will rejoice in the restoration that you bring about. Fill us with joy now, Lord, joy that is more weighty to us than the sorrow of our affliction. Grant us this joy, and we do pray with the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.